The Hamlet Podcast, Episode 17. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Macbeth with me, your host, Connor Hanretty. First off this week, I want to apologise for the lack of episode last weekend. I had the great privilege of directing a production of La Boheme, and despite having travelled to Cork, where the production happened, with my trusty microphone and my copy of the play, there just wasn't enough time. And this episode is one of the most important speeches in the play, so I didn't want to rush it. A very sincere thank you to those of you who reached out to check on me. It's quite lovely to know that you're so engaged and you're so excited for each episode on this journey. We have about a year to go, and rest assured, I'll skip a week only when I absolutely have to. So thanks for checking in, but all is well, and here we go. Banquo and Fleance have just gone to bed, and it's very dark. And now Macbeth addresses the servant that remains on stage with him, and he says, Go, bid thy mistress, when my drink is ready, she strike upon the bell. Get thee to bed. It's interesting that this scene began with Banquo and Fleance being confused about the time. This is a moment in history when people paid more attention to light and darkness than to clocks and watches. Macbeth is awake this late because, of course, he's on the brink of his awful deed and he's waiting for the signal from Lady Macbeth that she's done her part. Of course, he has to speak in code, since he can't exactly say, tell thy mistress to let me know when she has drugged the king's bodyguards. So instead, he keeps it innocent. And who wouldn't want a nice concoction to drink on a dark night in a Scottish castle? But if this play teaches us anything is that perhaps if your hostess offers you one, you say no thank you. Anyway, the servant will deliver the message and then go to bed as instructed. And Macbeth is left alone, waiting for the signal. And he starts seeing things. Here's the soliloquy in full. Is this a dagger which I see before me, the handle toward my hand? Come, let me clutch thee. I have thee not, and yet I see thee still. Art thou not fatal vision sensible to feeling as to sight? Or art thou but a dagger of the mind, a false creation, proceeding from the heat-oppressed brain? I see thee yet in form as palpable as this which now I draw. Thou marshalst me the way that I was going, and such an instrument I was to use. Mine eyes are made the fools of the other senses, or else worth all the rest. I see thee still, and on thy blade and dudgeon gouts of blood, which was not so before. There's no such thing. It is the bloody business which informs thus to mine eyes. Now, o'er the one-half world, nature seems dead, and wicked dreams abuse the curtained sleep. Witchcraft celebrates pale Hecate's offerings, and withered murder, alarmed by his sentinel, the wolf, whose howls his watch, thus, with his stealthy pace, with Tarquin's ravishing strides, towards his design, moves like a ghost. Thou sure and firm-set earth, hear not my steps, which way they walk, for fear thy very stones prate of my whereabout, and take the present horror from the time which now suits with it. Whilst I threat, he lives. Words to the heat of deeds too cold breath gives. I go, and it is done. The bell invites me. Hear it not, Duncan, for it is a knell that summons thee to heaven, 
or to hell. This is one of the most famous speeches in Shakespeare. A pensive would-be murderer sees a vision of a dagger pointing him in the direction of the king's bedroom. First and foremost, we should talk about daggers. People carried knives and daggers far, far more commonly in Shakespeare's England than would be considered safe or reasonable today. They may have used them simply as household implements or for eating or preparing food, but this was a brutal world, and it also was wise to be armed in it. Even the briefest survey of deaths by dagger in Shakespeare's plays, from Juliet to Julius Caesar, gives a sense that daggers were never very far away. But using one's dagger to kill a king, well, that's a much bigger deal. Especially in the months following the attempt to blow up the parliament with the king in it. It was illegal to represent the killing of a king on stage, and so it would have to happen only in the audience's imagination, and the action would take place off stage. So it's a real dramatic coup by Shakespeare to have Macbeth murderer-to-be, stay on stage and let us know what's happening in his mind before he does it. And rather alarmingly, he sees a dagger, the handle towards his hand. Is this a dagger which I see before me, the handle toward my hand? It's one of the most famous lines that Macbeth gets to say, and understandably he makes to grab it. Come, let me clutch thee. But he cannot so it's definitely a vision of a dagger rather than the real thing. He cannot grasp it, but the vision remains. I have thee not, and yet I see thee still. So Macbeth wonders if this strange dagger is only available to certain senses. He asks, Art thou not fatal vision sensible to feeling as to sight? He can see it, but he can't touch it, so he's wondering if perhaps it is only in his head, a vision that has emerged from the heat and pressure in there. Or art thou but a dagger of the mind, a false creation, proceeding from the heat-oppressed brain? We've already seen the considerable stress that all of this ambitious activity is causing in Macbeth. It's quite impressive that he himself is aware of it too. But the dagger remains in sight. So Macbeth pulls out his own to compare them. I see thee yet, in form as palpable as this which now I draw. The rest of this line is left off, as if to invite the actor to hold and stare and wonder in place of the dropped syllables. Macbeth is really thinking about why this dagger is floating in front of him. He just about understands. Thou marshalst me the way that I was going and such an instrument I was to use. The dagger is pointing him in the direction he was already planning to go, and is just like the instrument he's planning to use. Now, we've already heard this word in the play when Banquo warned of the instruments of darkness. No accident that Macbeth uses it here instead of something like weapon. He can't make up his mind whether to ignore this floating dagger as an impossible fantasy, or to trust his eyes more than all other sense. Mine eyes are made the fools of the other senses, or else worth all the rest. The dagger is still there, whether he is aware of it being a fantasy or not, and now it gets more alarming. Drops of blood appear on it. I see thee still, and on thy blade and dudgeon gouts of blood, which was not so before. 
The blade and the dudgeon are the two parts of the dagger, the metal blade and the wooden handle. Dudgeon is a strange and kind of obscure word that may have had a Scottish-sounding flavour for Shakespeare's audience. No harm, since that's where the play is set. It is not, however, connected to the French-derived other meaning of dudgeon, to be in a fit of rage or, as we know it, high dudgeon. Just so you know. So now drops of blood are appearing on the dagger, as a preview of how one might look when it's in use for its purpose of stabbing and killing. Our first introduction to Macbeth was a description of his extremely violent exploits on the battlefield, so a few drops of blood shouldn't really alarm him. But again, we must bear in mind that we are talking about the blood of Macbeth's king, and so it's all the more alarming to him to be imagining spilling it. He tries to shake it off. There's no such thing. It is the bloody business which informs thus to mine eyes. Blood again is the bloody business, another euphemism, of murder that's putting such images into his head and before his eyes. But he knows deep down there's no such thing. Now Macbeth expands his imagination, thinking about how late it is at night and how quiet and how vulnerable the world now is. Shakespeare does seem to be aware that half of the world would be in darkness while the other was in light. He describes how now, for half of the world, it is night, and so all appears to be dead while asleep. Not only that, the world can now be plagued by wicked dreams, even if their sleep is curtained, as in a four-poster bed. Now, o'er the one-half world, nature seems dead, and wicked dreams abuse the curtained sleep. While good people sleep, of course, the wicked get to work. While nature seems dead, the unnatural has time to do what it pleases. For instance, witchcraft celebrates pale Hecate's offerings. Hecate was an ancient Greek goddess particularly associated with the dark side. She's one of the most ancient of the gods and turns up regularly when there's mischief abroad. She's especially associated with midnight and the moon, hence her being called pale, and particularly with witchcraft. No surprise that she's name-checked here, and indeed in certain versions of the text, she herself will appear later in the play. So, witchcraft appears at this awful time of night, and so does murder. Withered murder, alarmed by his sentinel the wolf, whose howls his watch. Macbeth personifies murder as withered, like an old man, an image we see nowhere else. This old man has a wolf as his sentinel, since wolves are nocturnal animals. The howling of wolves is the watch kept by murder through the night. And murder moves with a stealthy, steady pace. Shakespeare now likens murder to Tarquin, known also as Sextus Tarquinius. Tarquin is the major antagonist in Shakespeare's long poem, The Rape of Lucrece, also known as Lucretia. In it, said Tarquin rapes the wife of his enemy, Collatinus, and his awful crime leads eventually to the foundation of the Roman Republic. The main point of this image is likening murder, moving deliberately in the night, to Tarquin, who crept up on Lucretia while she was sleeping. We have these established images of sleep and quiet and vulnerability, and Tarquin is a horrendous criminal who thrived and committed his deeds in such circumstances. 
There's also the sense of Tarquin's crime having led to a regime change, which surely must be on Macbeth's mind. The murder he is contemplating will, he trusts, lead to his being the next King of Scotland. The Rape of Lucrece is a very rich and fascinating poem, although it's also very dark, but it's very much worth your attention, and it will crop up again later in the play. For now, in Macbeth's head, murder is still stalking through the night, and, with Tarquin's ravishing strides, towards his design moves like a ghost. Now Macbeth steals himself. He prays to the earth itself that it will not echo his steps or reveal his whereabouts. Thou sure and firm-set earth, hear not my steps, which way they walk, for fear thy very stones prate of my whereabout, and take the present horror from the time which now suits with it. Macbeth seems to relish the silence at this darkest time of night. Murder moves like a ghost, totally silently. For the stones to chatter and prate of his whereabouts, echoing his steps or revealing where he is, this would take the present horror from the time and break up this fitting, threatening silence. But while Macbeth imagines daggers and sees Hecate and murder and Tarquin abroad, he realises that he does have a job to do, and for as long as he talks, Duncan stays alive. Whilst I threat, he lives. Words to the heat of deeds too cold breath gives. This is a curious little line. The cold breath of words gives no heat or animation to deeds. Actions speak louder and perhaps hotter than words. Finally, the bell rings off stage, prompting Macbeth's final lines of the scene. I go, and it is done. The bell invites me. Hear it not, Duncan, for it is a knell that summons thee to heaven or to hell. This echoes the last soliloquy we heard, in which Macbeth worried about the deed really being done when it is done. Now he seems more determined. He just says, I go, and it is done. There are going to be a great many more bells and knocks and other noises off stage in the play. It's quite chilling that the rhyming couplet that ends this scene calls the ringing of this bell a knell. This is the word expressly used for the bells rung at a funeral. So Macbeth is insisting very clearly that this bell invites him to go and commit the murder. But he hopes that Duncan doesn't hear it, since this very bell is announcing the king's funeral and by extension is summoning him to the afterlife, whether he'll be going on the up or the down elevator. As is so often in meaty soliloquies like this, there are a great many feminine endings in this speech. The rhythm isn't entirely smooth because Macbeth's thoughts are racing. He's planning to murder the king, and of course then his thinking is jangled and his pattern of speaking isn't very calm or smooth. We also have a couple of lines that don't even have ten syllables in them, further adding to the uneven quality of Macbeth's thoughts as he expresses them. An actor playing the role might pace the room while he attempts to reconcile seeing a floating dagger, changing direction or stopping and starting as the words don't flow evenly. Of course, actors are likely to interpret this scene in a myriad of ways, and there's a very handsome book called The Masks of Macbeth by Marvin Rosenberg that deals at length with the ways actors have approached this particular scene. If you happen to have a copy, cherish it. It's quite a rare book these days. 
And even better, if you happen to have a copy you no longer want, do please let me know and I promise I'll give it a very good home. For now, we have reached the end of Act 2, Scene 1, on the brink of this terrible act of murder. I can assure you that I will be back next week for Scene 2, and I hope you'll join me then. In the meantime, you can explore the daily posts I've been doing on Instagram, primarily to do with Hamlet still, as we journey through every day of the year in the attempt to find or celebrate someone or something to do with the history of the play. If there's interest, I might continue this through 2023, but this time, of course, for Macbeth. You can let me know in the comments if you're interested. There's also plenty of material on the website, thehamletpodcast.com, and I'm planning to do some bonus episodes during the Christmas holidays, so do be sure to stay tuned for that. Thank you, as always, for your company, and again for your concern last week, and I'll speak to you next time.